Good evening to all of you. Please open your Bibles to the first chapter of John's Gospel. John's Gospel, the first chapter on page 886 of the Pew Bibles. Page 886. If you were to be asked, what events have most changed history and created cascades of consequences for multitudes of people over long periods of time, what would come to your mind? World-changing milestones are measured by tracing their influence down through the centuries. Here are a couple of examples. In the late Middle Ages, competition for dominance of the spice trade with Southern and Eastern Asia, the most lucrative trade in the world at that time, motivated the monarch of Castile in present-day Spain to sponsor the expedition of Christopher Columbus to find a western sea route to the Indies. Portugal already controlled the eastern route through the Arabian Sea. Well, you know the history. Columbus encountered the new world of the Americas instead of India. And we are all here today as a long-term result of his misguided efforts. We might say as a result of the hankering for black pepper in Europe. About a century ago, much closer to our own time, a watershed historical event with unimaginable consequences occurred when, in 1914, the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and his wife, the Duchess of Hohenberg, leading to the two catastrophic world wars of the 20th centuries causing the death of some 80 million people and vast destruction throughout the continent of Europe and shaping the Western world even to this very day. Two deaths led to 80 million deaths. My father met and married my Polish mother in one of the unlikely happy outcomes of those great disasters. But the long-term results of those events, as great and momentous as they were, fade into relative insignificance compared to the stupendous, far-reaching, and indeed world-changing event of the Incarnation, or the taking upon himself of human nature of the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, the one God-man, with two complete natures, both the nature of God and the nature of man, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's read our text now in the Gospel of John. We're going to read from verses 14 through 18 in chapter 1, but we'll be spending all of our time today in verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. Please read along in your Bible, and please pay very careful attention because this is God's word for our gathering tonight. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord our God, you are very great. We come together tonight to consider the central event of all human history, the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God. Please grant each person who participates with us tonight a clear understanding and appropriate response in light of this world and eternity-altering event. We pray for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. The Incarnation enables us to behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The intrinsic glory of the spiritual Godhead cannot be accessed by us. God dwells in unapproachable light. But the Apostle John, who wrote our text, and his fellow apostles beheld the incarnate Jesus and his divine glory with their earthly senses. The same John wrote in his first letter, he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Well, what was that glory they beheld? What distinguished this man from the other men and women of that day? Three descriptors of this glory appear in verse 14 in our text, and these will serve as the three categories for our consideration tonight. First, the glory of Christ as the only Son of the Father. Second, the glory of Christ as full of grace. And third, the glory of Christ as full of truth. So our first category, Jesus Christ displayed the glory and uniqueness of the only Son of the Father. Following the incarnation, he possessed all attributes of divine power that are capable of manifestation to our human senses. Colossians 1.19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When it suited his purposes, he invoked omniscience, knowing the thoughts and hearts of men. When he desired to authenticate his mission with undeniable displays of power over the physical creation, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he calmed the storm, he changed the physical nature of water so that he could walk on it, and he multiplied food to hungering crowds but he also fully displayed the moral perfections of deity. These perfections were so arranged in his person that each one was expressed to the maximum possible extent. Yet, so far were they from inhibiting and interfering with one another that they rather provided the most vivid setting for each other. The moral beauties of Jesus were produced as a coordinated group like the brilliant facets of a precious gem, meticulously cut 
and polished, shining forth and eliciting admiration and adoration in those with eyes to appreciate him. He evinced perfect hatred of all forms of sin and evil. He tolerated not even a shred of hypocrisy or pride of being. He demanded total renunciation of every sinful way, of all motives that don't completely align with the intrinsic moral perfection of God. He had no regard for the approval or opinions of men living his life for the approbation of only one, his all-seeing Heavenly Father. Yet, at the same time, he welcomed the reviled outcasts, even the most degraded, even the morally leprous, to come to him to find life. He never cast away even one poor soul who came to him with pressing knowledge of its spiritual need. He appeared in human flesh to serve and to give that flesh as a ransom for the life of many. What is God like? That's a question perhaps many people ask today. Perhaps one of the first questions a child would ask. God is like Christ, who is God incarnate with flesh to make himself visible and accessible to us. No compromises were made in any way that distorted the perfect display of the nature and attributes of the Godhead that shone forth from Jesus. Do you behold him in this manner? He indeed displayed the glory and excellence of the only Son of the Father. Our second category, the glory of the incarnate Jesus Christ consists in his fullness of grace. We know the word grace denotes the completely unmerited favor that the Holy God extends spontaneously to unworthy sinners in his gospel and for reasons found only in his compassionate nature and depths of love in his own being. Nothing of merit in the vessels of his mercy provided the motivation. The life of Jesus must be considered in its totality as a great divine transaction in which he purchased and procured grace for his people. His very name, announced by the angel to Joseph, his legal earthly father, meant that the Lord saves, for Jesus himself would save his people from their sin. He himself would infallibly accomplish it. He did not live and did not die unto himself or for himself, but on behalf of others. He acted in two distinct yet complementary roles, and in both of them as a public person, representing the chosen yet sinful people he came to redeem. Christ's life from beginning to end revealed him as both the sinless yet sin-bearing Savior, working all necessary means to the perfect salvation of sinners. He acted in their place as their substitute or in their room. In his capacity as the second Adam or second man, Jesus lived out perfect righteousness honoring and obeying God with all the heart, with all the mind, with all the soul, and with all the strength, fulfilling every condition necessary to receive the title to eternal life, promised in the covenant of works. Do this, and you shall live. He did it. He did it all, and he did it all very well. And he received the promised reward of eternal life, but not for himself personally, but as a public person 
representing a vast multitude that would benefit graciously from his representation. The 18th century theologian James Murray said that the redemption which our Redeemer perfected was according to all the known forms of the divine law. But more than all, it was perfectly conformable to the spirit of the law of God. The spirit of our Savior's obedience was quite answerable to the intention and spirit of the law of God. The principles and motives from whence he acted, served, and obeyed were holy, just, and pure. Love to God and man were his devoted principles. His motives were to glorify the one who sent him, to deliver his people from wrath, and to make them happy. As representative sin-bearer, the Christ voluntarily took upon himself all the primeval curses laid upon sinful rebels by the retributive justice of God. He experienced poverty, weariness, hunger, homelessness, misunderstanding, hatred, persecution, arrest, trial, conviction, torture, shame, death physical and death spiritual, total abandonment on the cross. All these curses belong justly to the account of sinners like you and me. As their substitute, publicly acting on their behalf, Jesus absorbed in himself all that offended divine justice could impose upon guilty ones. He was numbered among the transgressors in his death. That is, he was not merely to be spatially grouped in death on the cross with transgressors, rather that in his official actions, in his office as sin bearer, from the beginning to the ending of his life, he was regarded by the justice of God as a representative transgressor and condemned as such. At his trials before the Jewish spiritual and Roman government courts, we see a curious spectacle of this public representative being both proven innocent and yet condemned as guilty. In reality, he was both innocent and guilty. In his personal state as sinless representative man under the covenant of works, he was found completely innocent and indeed perfectly positively righteous. But in his official capacity as sin bearer on behalf of his people, he was adjudged and treated as guilty and hence subject to all the punishment required by the law of God. Pilate declared him to be innocent. He was personally sinless, yet officially sin-bearing. The Incarnation made this arrangement possible. In the fifth century, in the church in Constantinople, Proclus, testifying against the false doctrines of Nestorius, explained rightly the necessity of the Incarnation. He said, mere man could not redeem. The naked Godhead could not suffer. But Jesus, incarnate, both redeemed and suffered as God-man. The life of Jesus was full of grace, grace that remains available today for condemned and guilty sinners. His life and its unprecedented events cannot be understood on any other theory as to its purpose and its meaning. He did not live and die simply as a great moral teacher, although he certainly was the greatest that the world has ever seen. 
But no incarnation or new revelation of deity was necessary for that purpose because the perfect moral law of God had previously been revealed on Mount Sinai in the Summary Ten Commandments, written on tablets as it were by the very finger of God. This existing divine revelation of morality was already complete and permanently binding on all men. Jesus introduced no new morality, nor did he abrogate the perfect morality of God's law that already existed and required no abrogation. Rather, he fulfilled it. Nor can the life and death of Jesus be considered as an utmost exhibition of the love of God towards man. What would then have been accomplished by his incarnation? Many people have laid down their lives for those whom they loved or in service to great causes or to obtain supreme ends. Jesus in no way lived and died for some special cause or political movement. The divine and unlimited power at his disposal could have brought about any goals he may have desired through more direct and suitable means. Neither could Jesus' sufferings and death be merely an exhibit of the evil forces and powers present in this fallen creation. We know this because all that happened to him was entirely under his active control and direction throughout his entire life. No one could have touched him, seized him, or judged him unless he himself had willed it to be so. Pilate proudly claimed power over Jesus to crucify or to release. Not so, responded Jesus. The power had been granted from above, else Pilate could no more have wrought anything on Jesus than he could have moved the planets in their orbits. No arresting power could have seized him until his hour had come, else he could simply have passed through the midst of his persecutors, untouched and unaffected by their evil intents. No, in all his acts, in all his obedience, and in all his sufferings, Jesus, as mediator, acted officially to purchase grace for the people he represented. The glory of Jesus Christ incarnate consists in his fullness of grace. And then the third category. By no means less, his glory also consists inseparably with his fullness of truth. The truth he announced related to all the great pressing and eternal questions of our human condition and our relationship to the most fundamental and ultimate business of life, that is, to God himself. We have seen how Christ's fullness of grace solves the problems of guilt, of sin for those who become united to him. Now we will consider how his fullness of truth works to overcome not merely the guilt of sin, but also the ongoing power of sin in those same people who rightly reorder their minds and their way of life that had been bent into perverse misshapes due to evil deed, deeds. The entire man or woman becomes renewed through union with Jesus. Union in his death means they died to sin once for all with him. Union in his resurrection means they rise to walk in newness of life. So they no longer function as slaves to sin, but rather as children of God and slaves, if you'll accept the metaphor, to righteousness. The fullness of truth that characterized the person of Jesus renews the minds of those who join to him in discipleship. His explanation of moral truth never consisted merely of cold academic facts. He taught warm and glowing realities. It was not the dispassionate truth of the scientist 
but vital, living truth according to godliness. Jesus pronounced the most perfect and uncompromising moral teaching the world has ever seen. And in his life, he always lived and acted exactly according to the principles he taught his disciples. He likewise demanded the highest ethical standards from them and enabled them to attain to those standards by his grace. He taught them to love their enemies as he loved his, to hate evil and iniquity in all its forms as he did, to wage aggressive warfare against their own sins, even to the point of cutting off an offending body member if necessary to avoid the final damnation of the impenitent. He modeled and taught the supreme and all-encompassing duties enforced by the law of God. When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment of the law? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There could be no frozen formalism, no mere ceremony, no empty show of piety. The greatness of God demands the whole devotion of man. Hypocrisy and mixed motivations are everywhere forbidden and exposed. He taught everyone to serve but one master and exposed the dangers of covetousness, greed, worldly applause, and fear of man. He said there's only one to be feared. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And no man ever spoke as Jesus did. He fully warned of the divine wrath impending over the heads of the unbelieving and exposed their danger with the most explicit and terrifying warnings. Yet, he exemplified and taught at the same time profound humility, lowliness of mind, service to others, and self-denial. Greatness in his kingdom rises only as it stoops to the low place of a servant. Blessings fall upon the poor in spirit, upon those who mourn, upon the meek, upon those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, upon those who strive after purity of heart. And somehow, as we said before, these two fullnesses of grace and truth coexisted in the harmony of the one person of the God-man. Mere men and women often have some of their capabilities highly developed while leaving others neglected. It often turns out that their weaknesses shadow and detract from their accomplishments. An overdeveloped excellence of character or talent in one facet of life inhabits the same human breast that displays baseness and self-seeking in another. Not so with Christ. His fullness of grace and fullness of truth revolved around each other as if they were a binary star system, giving light and life to all around them. Therefore, the one who receives grace from Jesus must also receive truth from him. It has always been true that many people seek Jesus for his grace out of no motivation greater than self-love and temporary fear to escape the threatened wrath of God. That motivation is good and even necessary, but it's not sufficient. When the new birth proclaimed by Christ occurs in a person, they receive implanted by the Holy Spirit a new nature, a nature that has been remade into the image of Christ. The motivation of fear must be joined with and very much exceeded by the new motivation of love and gratitude that naturally flow 
from the forgiven heart. The glory of Jesus Christ in his incarnation consists in his fullness of truth. So we've seen his glory as of the only son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So let's close with some personal applications, one for each of these three aspects of that glory in our lives today. First, to everyone here for listening in on the internet, simply this, behold the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Behold him. That glory no longer remains beyond your ability to comprehend or approach. There has never been another person like Jesus Christ. Do you regard him as transcendently unique and valuable? Is he of surpassing great worth in your eyes? Even when he was a small child, members of the ancient Persian priestly class traveled immense distances to worship him and open their treasures to present him with gifts suitable for his coming ministry as prophet, priest, and king. To see him is to see divinity. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Consider him, love him, reckon with him, seek for his presence as the great goal of your existence. John and the other apostles, they saw him, they touched him physically. Today we can see him and touch him as it were through the complete revelation we have of him in the Holy Scripture. We must pay much more careful attention to what we hear and read about him. Let us together make the coming year a year of great attention to the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Second, to anyone here present or listening online who acknowledges that they do not belong to the household of faith, I'm so very glad that you've joined with us tonight. The urgent application of this message to you must be to alert you that Jesus Christ is glorious because he is full of grace, seeing that your need for grace is your one truly urgent need. Without grace, you will face inevitable doom and misery as a sinner. You must obtain an assured entitlement to this grace. But how do you obtain grace? You obtain it by embracing Christ by faith as your sole hope of grace, because he's full of grace. Your only means of acceptance, forgiveness, and life in the presence of the unapproachably holy God. The incarnation presents to you a very tangible and real Savior, full of grace. He has saved countless sinners before you, among them some of the very worst. This graceful Savior delights to save the most hopeless cases of sin-filled people. For that is why he became incarnate. He has never rejected a single lost soul who has come to him in sincerity of heart and deep soul repentance. And you can be sure he will not reject you. There is no hindrance to your coming to him except your own continuing unbelief. You need no qualification to come except faith that embraces Jesus as a suitable and sufficient Savior. So come to him without delay, and you will find rest for your burdened soul. And then lastly, for the privileged and happy group of believers here, Jesus Christ is glorious because he's full of truth. Do you love his truth as you ought? If you do, rest assured that you will live at great opposition to the society around you, for it rejects and despises his truth. 
Nevertheless, commit yourself unflinchingly to the truth of Christ, to obey him universally in every compartment of life and every sphere of responsibility. In fact, such obedience provides the most certain evidence and the most confident assurance that we have indeed been united to him. As the same Apostle John wrote in his letter, chapter 2, verse 3, that by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By obedience to his truth, we embrace the costly discipleship he demands from us as we pattern our lives after the example he himself lived out during his life in the normal circles of human activities and relationships. The word became flesh and dwelt among us then, and his spirit comes and dwells in us now, if we've been united to him by faith. His truth becomes our truth. His commandments become the innate desires of our renewed nature. We advance from one degree of glory to another as we behold his glory, his fullness of truth. Really, in the end, all the purposes of God for our lives are enabled and are the fruits of the incarnation of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Soon enough, those who are his will dwell in perfect security and delight with him forever, beholding his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord our God, may you enable each person here to more clearly behold the glory of Jesus revealed in his incarnation. And may each person respond as appropriate to their own spiritual needs and condition, finding in Christ all that they need. Amen.